What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I get the benefit of, of talking to audiences all around the world and you know, I probably make 100 speeches a year. And I would just try to cut out my story and walk out on stage and let me tell you about clean water. And it just never had the same resonance. You know, people want to connect to issues through the authenticity of people who care. And so I, I do believe like the personal narrative in, in whatever you're doing. You know, if, you're, if it's a startup, I want to know like, why did you start your startup? What, why do you care? What was the problem you were trying to solve? What, what led you to that moment? I care about that as a way of understanding the product or the expression of that. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode, How to Use the Power of Storytelling. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin, senior writer at Inc. Magazine, joined by my producer, Josh Christensen. So today we're talking about something, Christine, that you and I think about a lot in our work. In fact, it's probably the biggest part of both of our jobs, and that's the art of storytelling. Yeah, that's a lot of what we reporters and producers do day to day here at Inc. But the kind of storytelling that we are talking about today is not always intuitive to entrepreneurs. Sure, they're generally pretty good at talking about their businesses, but perhaps not so adept at talking about themselves. I mean, it's hard talking about yourself. And if you're building something cool, you often want to talk about your fantastic employees or your great customers. But not necessarily about your personal journey you took to get where you are. Our guest today is a master storyteller by necessity. He's founder and therefore chief fundraiser of Charity Water. And so Charity Water is this not-for-profit with more than 50,000 projects that provide safe and clean drinking water to more than 11 million people. And for a nonprofit, successfully raising funding can come down to how compelling your pitch is. Right. But Scott Harrison's personal story wasn't so easy to tell in that it doesn't make him sound like the most reputable character. Yeah. And by his own admission. So he had a pretty conservative upbringing. But when Scott was 18, he moved to New York City and got into everything that he was sheltered from growing up. Yes. Sex, drugs, booze, you name it. You name the vice and he had it. And a lot of those vices stemmed from the job that he had for most of his 20s. He was a club promoter, which basically means you get paid to party and get the right people into clubs to buy expensive booze. And he was really, really good at it. But when Scott was at the peak of his club promotion success, that was when he had a life-altering realization. At 28 years old, I kind of woke up one day and realized, oh my gosh, I'm the worst person I know. I hate my life. I hate who I've become. I'm morally bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And I've done nothing of service to, to anyone or anything except myself. And if I actually continue down this path, I'm probably going to die by 40. 
And when I do die, I'm going to have created perhaps the most meaningless legacy a human being could create. You know, my tombstone at that point should have read, here lies a man who has gotten a million people wasted. Because that's all I did. Right. Was, was, that's crazy. Was there a breaking point for you in particular? Or was it just kind of that, that realization in your, in your own head? Was there something that spurred that? Sure. There were a couple things. The first thing was just uh, in, so I was, I was, uh, this was, let's see, the fall of 2003 or winter of 2003, half my body just went inexplicably numb one day. And I just couldn't really feel uh, my hands, my arms. You know, I remember going to all the doctors and getting the MRIs and the CT scans. I was, uh, I was convinced I had a brain tumor. Uh, something was just wrong and, and, and everything checked out okay. And I remember coming home to my business partner. He's like, dude, you smoke like two to three packs a day. You know, you're doing loads of cocaine. Like no wonder you're having health issues. Like your body is telling you, stop it. And I think, you know, what, what really that moment was about was maybe forced with mortality. I mean, I had been living like I was going to live forever, jumping on planes, chasing fashion week uh, around to Milan and Paris and London and 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 I was just going to live forever. I mean, this was the good life forever. And I started to ask some deeper spiritual questions. You know, did I believe any of that stuff that that I've been brought up uh, in the church to believe? And um, you know, if there was a heaven and hell, uh, I certainly knew where I was going after the way that I I lived, and that actually scared me. Right. And right. that then led to a couple months later this this opulent vacation in Punta del Este, South America where, uh, you know, we had rented this compound with servants and with horses. And I remember spending $1,000 on fireworks on New Year's Eve. And there were magnums of Dom Perignon. It was kind of the pinnacle of what people in the club business did. They went to Uruguay to party some more over New Year's. And I remember just hating the week. Uh, I wasn't in love with my girlfriend. And even though she was on the cover of a fashion magazine, you know, she wasn't in love with me either. Uh, it was just this kind of, this emptiness. And I was, it was almost like the game of musical chairs that I've been playing for 10 years and the music stopped. And for the first time there was nowhere to sit. And I wanted, I wanted to try to find my way back to the spirituality and the morality. And, and I, I wanted a, a life change. I wanted out. It was the good life until it wasn't. Yeah. And it was, it was, it happens, you know, slowly, but then like one day you just wake up and say, oh my gosh, this has been happening for a long time. I've been unhappier and unhappier. I've been living in denial. And wow, now I really hate it. Yeah. And what you did from there is is kind of the beginning of your remarkable story. Um, you actually took some steps, um, some some baby steps to kind of turn that around. And it, it led you almost directly to doing something that you had no experience um, doing at the time and that had a steep learning curve ahead of it, um, launching Charity Water. Can you tell us that story? Well, I think I realized that a, a pivot was not needed. You know, this was not a small life change that was going to do. It wasn't 20 or 30 degrees. I needed a total 180. I needed a transformation. And, you know, I, I, I actually asked myself the question, what would the opposite of my life look like? What would the opposite of the sycophantic, hedonistic life look like? And I got this thought, what if I could serve others? What if I could take one year almost as a tithe or a penance for the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted and I could use my, my gifts, if I had any, in service to 
people who were suffering, people who needed help. And I thought, what if I volunteered on a humanitarian mission? And I just began to apply to the Doctors Without Borders and the Red Crosses and the World Visions and the Salvation Armies and all these big orgs that I'd tangentially heard of. Of course, I'd never given money to, but had heard of and said, look, I'm willing to give a year's worth of time and hope that that might change me and, and that I might actually be able to be useful to help others. Well, you know, maybe no surprise, uh, 12 organizations or so just turned me down because, you know, the nightclub promoters are not especially useful on humanitarian missions, right? Doctors Without Borders is not looking to throw a rave in <laughs> Sudan. Um, and, and it was, I remember it was just this kind of awful moment. Oh my gosh, like uh, no one is going to take me. And I had this one thing maybe going for me. I had gone to New York University uh, and I had gotten a degree in communications and, and journalism. And I was always a pretty good writer. I'd been writing for the local paper when I was 13. I was always a pretty good photographer. And I'd applied to this one organization who was sailing a humanitarian hospital ship into Liberia, West Africa. And I said, I can be your photojournalist. Here's some photos that I've taken. Here's some things that I've written. Here's actually a degree that I've never used. And I have 15,000 people on my email list. So I'm actually coming with a little bit of a built-in audience. Albeit, these are people that typically want to know about where the next party is or you know, where you know, the, the DJ is playing. But uh, maybe I would be able to take these people on a journey and highlight the amazing humanitarian work that this one organization was doing. So they actually took me. And I remember what was so fun about this was I actually had to pay them $500 a month to volunteer. So it was, it, was, it was a hospital ship, 350 volunteer crew. Everybody paid. So that was one of the ways that the organization was able to uh, raise donations. They would turn us as volunteer crew into fundraisers and we'd pay our room and board. So I learned that this hospital ship this 522-foot converted cruise liner that had turned into a hospital ship, not so unlike the one that just sailed into New York, um, it was going to Liberia, uh, a country I'd never heard of, but I quickly learned uh, had just exited a 14-year civil war led by Charles Taylor. And I was going to be responsible for going in with these doctors. Uh, at, the, at the time, Christine, the, the doctor... Had, the, the, the country had one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. There was no electricity. There was no running water. There was no sewage. Oh, my goodness. So if you got sick, you were completely out of luck. And that was the idea, that we would bring our huge hospital ship in, and people who had no access to medical care for a decade and a half would be able to come on the ship and get help. And, and I was going to document all of the befores and all the afters for the medical library. That's incredible. And how did that turn into you founding your own organization? Well, I did that for a year and I loved it. And I think I realized that maybe one of the skills I had was for promoting. And I had been promoting this idea that if you get past the velvet rope into the club, if you spend a lot of money on the the best table and bottle service, then your life has meaning. And I really was able to just promote the, the opposite of that. Uh, the work, the unselfish, compassionate work of doctors and surgeons, of humanitarians, doctors who could be working in plastic surgery in Santa Barbara, California, but instead had come to Liberia paying their way to use their, their hands and use their skills in the service of others. And, and I was seeing how these stories were resonating with some of the people that used to come to the clubs. 
I remember getting an email one day from uh, a woman sitting at her desk at Chanel, and she's like, I'm, I have tears streaming down my face. All my, my coworkers are like, what's going on? And I'm reading these stories, and I, and I want to join the ship. I, wanted, I, I want this same life change that you're experiencing. So after that first year, uh, I realized I was kind of good at it. I was good at taking pictures and writing stories and helping the organization raise awareness and raise money. And I got them published in the Wall Street Journal and, and 20 other different publications. And I just signed up for a second year because I didn't know what was next. And it was on that second tour back to Liberia that I started to see the water crisis up close and, and personal. And I realized that half of the country was drinking dirty, unsafe water from swamps and ponds and rivers. And I learned half of the disease in the country was caused by unsafe water and lack of sanitation. So this was kind of, this hit me, you know, like a wave. Oh my gosh, here we are picking up the pieces with these very uh, amazing doctors, but we're only able to help a couple thousand people every year with these expensive surgeries. And yet a couple million people in the country are drinking disgusting water that is making half of them sick. So I just became interested in the idea of water as health, the idea of getting to the root cause of so many of these symptoms, these health symptoms we were seeing, and trying to go provide clean water to the people of Liberia. But then at the time I learned you know, it was a tenth of the world. Uh, you know, Today as we have this conversation, 785 million people are drinking dirty water today. 785 million people do not have clean water to wash their hands or keep themselves safe or provide for their families. So it was really that, that leap from working with the, the medical community and these doctors to water being the most basic need for health and a tenth of the planet living without it and wanting to make that my life's mission. Absolutely. And what's so remarkable about your story is that before you even had the mission for Charity Water, you knew that you had the success in communicating a story and communicating a goal and getting people to rally around it. Um, it it's almost as if you could have chosen, uh, a, you know, almost any kind of public health or humanitarian crisis and built an organization around that, that ability to storytell. Did you know that that, did you really truly know at that point that that was your strength and that that was your um, kind of gift to, to work with? No, but I, I do think I had excitement going for me. Uh, this idea of just kind of exuberant storytelling or, you know, and again, that was for years. Oh my gosh, we're throwing the best party on 30, Thursday night at Lotus. We're flying in a DJ from Paris. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Come early, right? So there was kind of a, so it was really redirecting maybe those skills and saying, oh my gosh, if you had $380, you could sponsor a cleft lip surgery and you could give a 60-year-old woman a new face, right? You could, you, could, you could make it so that food and water does not spill out of her mouth for $380. And, you know, and, then, and, and I can show you and I could take a picture of her before and I could take a picture during the surgery and then I can show you this woman after post-surgery with a big smile on her face back in her community, you know, being celebrated. Uh, for the beautiful hero she is, and that costs $380. Who wants to give? You know, so in a way, it was like bottle of Veuve Clicquot, 
or a or a surgery. Yeah, and I mean, it makes makes a lot of sense to just channel that energy into something actually good for the world. And what year was it when you founded Charity Water? And can you explain? Um, I know this is a huge question, but how the organization has grown since then, and some of your biggest accomplishments. Well, I came back to New York City uh, after two years on the ship, and it was 2006. And I, you know, I had this mission, okay, clean water was going to be my mission. Um, but I, I started to talk to my friends. And one of the things I'd realized, just in communicating with people from the ship from from Africa for a couple of years, was there was this huge lack of trust in charities, charities writ large, uh, had a, a, a trust problem. I remember coming across a USA Today poll that found 40% of Americans said they don't trust charities. More recently, New York University did a poll, found 70% of Americans believed charities wasted their money, wasted their donations. So I thought, okay, you know, if, if I'm going to make the dent that, uh, that the world needs with a global water crisis, right, 785 million humans living, I mean, that's, that's more than two United States of America's living without clean water, um, we're going to need some of those people who aren't giving to charities, who, who don't trust and, you know, I sat down and thought about a, a new business model. I was, I was crowdsourcing. I was going to these people saying, well, what would the perfect charity look like? What would make you want to give? Because everybody could stand for clean water. So when I told people, hey, I want to bring clean water to the world, no objections there. You know, nobody was saying children should be drinking from swamps. You know, women should be walking eight hours a day at risk of rape or, you know, lion attack, you know, to some faraway river. Um, but they, they kind of didn't trust the system, the bureaucracy of charities, the opacity maybe of, of some charities. And uh, I came up with these couple, the, these three building blocks really, that was the answer to, uh, to many of the questions that I was asking. And the first was, could we create a charity where 100% of all donations, all public donations went directly to build water projects that got people clean water? Could we somehow fund the overhead separately you know, the office costs, the staff salaries, the flights, the Epson toner machine, you know, the phone bills, the stuff that people didn't want to pay for. Could we, could we find another way to fund that so that every dollar or $100 or, or $100,000 could go directly to the field, directly to help people get clean water? And then the second idea was, okay, well, if we could figure out how to do that, then could we use technology to prove what that money had done? Could we geolocate? Uh, improve on Google Earth and Google Maps every single water point the Charity Water would, would fund around the world? Could we show a donor a satellite image of a well that was built being used by, by people that they had funded? So proof kind of became this second pillar. And then the third was just this belief that for our work to be sustainable and culturally appropriate, it had to be led by the locals in each of these countries. So it wouldn't be a guy like me from New York City or you know, Philadelphia flying over to Kenya to go drill a well or flying to Bangladesh to uh, you know, build rainwater harvesting systems. It would be finding the locals, the local teams and organizations in each of these countries, growing their capacity, and they would be the ones not only constructing the water projects, uh, training the communities towards hygiene and hand washing and, and sustainability, but they would also be the ones getting the credit. It would be Ethiopians leading the communities in Ethiopia and the country forward, not, not 
you know, someone like me from New York City. Our job would be to build a movement, raise as much capital, restore as much faith in the charitable system as possible, connect donors to what their money was doing and the people whose lives were being saved. And then the, the, we would be creating thousands of jobs uh, in each of these countries that would be taking that money and turning it into clean water. So it was really three ideas. Give away 100%, prove to people where their donations were going, and then make sure the work was done in a culturally appropriate and sustainable way by using locals. Absolutely. And day one, Christine, I mean, day one, you know, if I go back now 13 years, the only idea I had at the time to get started was to throw a party for Charity Water in a nightclub because <laughs> it's what I knew. Yeah. And it was kind of a fun turn, you know, looking back now. Um, I, I wrote a book not too long ago called Thirst and, you know, I, I, it's like you, you, you get this moment to reflect and I guess it was kind of that redemptive turn. Ending the decade of nightlife and starting Charity Water in a nightclub. And this time, we gave everybody open bar for an hour, but we charged $20 on the way in. And 100% of the money we collected went to build our first few water projects in an IDP camp in northern Uganda, where 31,000 people were drinking from a swamp. And we then sent video proof and photo proof and satellite coordinates back to the 700 people that attended that nightclub and said, you did this. You came to a party, you gave $20, not a lot of money, and we pooled all that money and here's the impact. And that was kind of this mini proof of concept 13 years ago. And people were blown away hearing back from a charity having given so little money, they just assumed it would go into some vacuum or some big black hole. And being able to see the precise location and impact of those $20, we just said, we think we're onto something here. Let's just keep doing this. Let's keep giving away 100% of the money. Let's keep proving where that money goes and proving the impact. And maybe this thing will grow. And, you know, 13 years later, you know, we're closing in on half a billion dollars of support from um, just from, from everyday people, from over a million donors from 140 countries. Um, we don't take government money. Uh, we, we've really been funded primarily just by individuals, by, by people who say, I could get excited. I could stand for clean drinking water if I knew where my money was going. And I could give $40 a month or I could give $10,000 for an entire village to get clean water. Or I could give uh, a, a six-year-old girl recently sent in $8.15 of her allowance. Because she saw a video online and said, she wrote us a note, said, I'm sending in my money so kids stop dying of bad water. So it's really been trying to build this global community, this global movement, restoring faith and charity through values of hyper-transparency and, and the innovative use of technology, and then getting as many human beings clean drinking water as possible. We'll be right back after a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
So when we left off, Scott was making this transition in his life to becoming this 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 founder and fundraiser of a remarkable not-for-profit. And th- that journey is really incredible from this misfit club promoter to his volunteer humanitarian work to where he is now. And that story has become an important part of Charity Water's ethos. And I think a lot of businesses can relate to that in some way. Maybe not to the club promoter, sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing, but I'm sure in your time covering business, Christine, you've seen a lot of compelling stories from founders and and CEOs in this business. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, generally, they excel at telling kind of the founding story of a business. And sometimes they don't to the extent where it it can become comical how far like and to what lengths founders will go to 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 have a compelling founding story. I mean, there's even like a mythology around it in Silicon Valley and made up made up founding stories, you know, so people even make stuff up when they don't have a good story. That's how important it is. But I think the stories that resonate the most, like Scott's, come from a place of authenticity. But it's not just enough to have a good story. You also have to know how to tell it and tell it over and over and over again. And Scott, I mean, that's the remarkable thing about his story. He's probably told it. He has told it hundreds, if not thousands of times. And it's it's compelling and it's earnest. And, you know, he is he is so good at telling that story. When I spoke with him, I asked him further about using that story to promote his brand and the role good storytelling can play in any brand. It was the only way to start. You know, people want to know why you are doing this thing. Why should they care? And I just remember in the early days, I had I had a little bit of credibility because I just spent two years in West Africa on this humanitarian mission. I had taken 50,000 photos. I had written uh, you know, tens of thousands of words about my experiences and the people I was meeting. And in the early days of Charity Water, I would just open up my laptop and I eight to 10 times a day, I would give mini presentations, mini keynotes saying, you know, here's a little bit about me and how I got into this, and here's what I saw, and here's why I need your help. And I guess, you know, maybe part of it was just for me, whenever I met anybody in this space, anybody with a charity or, or a, a mission, I'm like, well, how'd you get into this? Why do you care about clean water? And, you know, why aren't you doing something else? So I think it just kind of, it's where it started. It became intuitive. You know, I'll be honest. I mean, there are times when, you know, I'd much rather not. I mean, there was there was a, a period of a year where I, I, I get the benefit of, of talking to audiences all around the world. And, you know, I probably make 100 speeches a year. And I would just try to cut out my story and walk out on stage and let me tell you about clean water. And it just never had the same resonance. You know, people want to connect to issues through the authenticity of people who care and uh, now, when our team members at Charity Water go out, they don't tell my story. They tell their stories. They tell about how they were impacted maybe by seeing a child drink dirty water for the first time in their life or, or how they had this moment that, you know, when they realized water was not something every human had, it was not something to be taken for granted. So I, I do believe like the personal narrative in, in whatever you're doing, you know, if, you're, if it's a startup, I want to know like, why did you start your startup? Why do you care? What was the problem you were trying to solve? What, what led you to that moment? I care about that as a way of understanding the product or the expression of that. 
So I think it's just, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the, the book, you know, I, I, gosh, I spent two years writing a hundred thousand word account of, of what had happened, really just hoping that the book could be helpful to other social entrepreneurs talking about all the mistakes we made. Just, I mean, you know, there, there was a lawsuit early on at charity water. We failed on well drills. We had water quality issues. We, yeah, we, we made all these mistakes and I, it was kind of terrible in some ways, spending two years, you know, looking back and rehashing it. But I also wanted to say just, you know, through, through the book, look, it's never too late to start over. And no matter how uh, much you might have failed, you know, in my case, it was a moral failure. You know, you can take those things, you could take those learnings from your past and you really can redeem them. You know, and, and I mean, unless you killed somebody, you know, as you read this book, like it, it would it would be very hard to find a reader as depraved as I truly was at that moment. And, and now I've been blessed with a, a life's work. I have a beautiful family. I get to stand on a hundred stages a year and, and talk about generosity and compassion and clean water for the whole world and, and, and heroes. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, I wanted to say it's never too late to change. And some of those things that you think maybe were real, uh, mistakes, you can, you can turn them around. You can turn them into learnings, uh, or even strengths. Absolutely. Could you tell us the story of one of those early um, hurdles that you got over as an organization? Yeah, there was a... So I mentioned these birthday campaigns. So we kept doing them for years, and we would call them September campaigns. And this this idea of drilling live via satellite from the middle of nowhere, a rural village in Africa, and, and connecting people all around the world, sitting at their computers who had given a little bit of money for that project, just we wanted to keep doing it. And uh, we came across um, an amazing drilling partner in the Central African Republic. Uh, This is a country a lot of people haven't even heard of. It's a small landlocked country in the central of Africa. Uh, And uh, there was a a specific people group there, the Bayaka Pygmies. Um, This is a group of people that are, you know, somewhere between four and a half feet to five feet tall. And they're oppressed because of their size, because of of their their tribal looks. They're actually oppressed often by the the tall Central Africans. And our our local driller had been on this mission to get all the Bayaka access to clean water. He thought he could lift their position in life, their position, their status in the country, just by providing them all with clean water and sanitation. And there was this one village called Mwale that he'd been trying to help for many years, and he'd had all these failed attempts. Uh, he had dug a well by hand and they just couldn't find water. Then he brought uh, a rig and couldn't find water as all the people were standing around. And he said, I have a new rig. I have new equipment. I think I can finally solve it if I need, if I have $15,000. So, you know, silly us. We're like, great. All we know is failure at this village. Let's turn this into a huge campaign. Let's go help the Bayaka of Mawale village. And then let's drill live on Charity Water's anniversary and celebrate success. Well, you, you could probably tell where the story is going. Um, we get a third dry well. And we've got people tuning in from all around the world who have given a little bit of money for this community. And we drill twice. And we have to pack up the rigs and leave this community no better than we found them. Perhaps worse, because they'd all stood around with renewed hope for the third time. And we effectively said to our donors, we just lit your money on fire. Because we didn't get the result. And I remember, you know, there was, 
there were a bunch of people on the ground that were wondering whether it was wise to broadcast failure to that many people around the world. And I just remembered saying, well, it's true. And people want the truth. You know, they, they don't want, you know, oh, technical satellite, uh, you know, we're having satellite connectivity issues. They don't want anything that's not true. They just want to know the truth. And the truth was human and the truth was sad and it sucked. And, you know, we promised to try again six months later with, with more equipment. But uh, that was one of the most powerful videos that we had ever done. Uh, we got more positive response from people that said, we're here for you. We are grieving alongside you. Uh, if you need money to try again, we're going to be first in line to give the money to try again. And, you know, I, I think uh, maybe the, the lesson there was, you know, we, we had this value of transparency and you've got to go with it in the good times and the bad times. And in this case, it did serve us well. We eventually went back uh, less than a year later with new equipment, uh, with another fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, and we actually got the community access to clean water, uh, and and was were able to celebrate that as a win. But at the time, it was a it was a huge loss. It felt like a huge mistake, uh, taking a a risky bet. You know, it's like fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times. I mean, we had we really had no business setting up that community for for success. Scott, how is your company coping with the coronavirus currently? Um, we spoke uh, several weeks ago, just as you know, before even the New York City stay-at-home orders were beginning. Um, they were beginning the following week, and you had already closed your office. I think you were one of the first people I spoke to who had said, "You know, we're we're going to be really careful here. We're trying this thing out," <laughs> and that abundance of caution was really the first I'd heard, and was fascinating to me. How how has your organization been? affected since then? And what have you done um, kind of to to carry on? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, we, we closed when I think there were nine cases in New York City uh, and just un unfortunately believed that the city was ill-equipped. Uh, in some ways, Manhattan is a cruise ship. Uh, and, you know, many of our team members live in, in high rises or, you know, apartment buildings that would be kind of cruise ships within the cruise ship. And we just thought this thing was going to get out of hand really fast. And we wanted to protect uh, our team members. Really, the, the safety uh, was really important. And we said, look, we'd rather be, be wrong, come back to work two weeks later, have an exercise in uh, remote communication, than be wrong and, and be too late. And, and unfortunately, it turned out that um, you know, New York City really became the, the epicenter uh, in, in so many ways for this. Gosh, I mean, I think like everybody, it's just been so hard. Uh, I was talking to a friend the other day and I said, how you doing? And he said, I'm having a wide range of experiences, which I thought was a, a very succinct way of putting it. Um, it has been hard on our team. It's been hard on morale. Uh, we have seen giving drop massively. Uh, we have had to write down our goals and our budget this year. Uh, we have had some major donor conversations you know, at the multi-million dollar level put on hold. We have seen some of our, some, many, we have seen many of our spring members stop giving monthly because they have lost their jobs and they, they actually can't afford to give anything to charity during this moment. So it's been incredibly hard. I think the great sense of loss, Christine, is that clean water is literally needed now more than ever around the world. It is, it is the first line of defense against the virus. If you don't have clean water to wash your hands, 
you know, it, it's like if you go in the CD, it's like that, then social distancing. It's, it's, so the, the thought that because of the state of the global uh, economy that is going to result from this, the state of uncertainty, we will be able to carry out less of our mission because less people will be able to support that mission when the mission is needed now more than ever is, is, a, is a tension, you know, that we carry. And there's a, there's a sense of loss and, and grief there. Um, from a business sense, we immediately cut 24% of costs. You know, realizing that this is, I I believe many nonprofits are going to go out of business. I believe many nonprofits are are going to bring their irrational, uh, exuberant optimism into this moment. And while that works for them 99% of the time, this may be the 1% that it doesn't work for them. And what's needed is a stark realism, uh, a kind of gloomy, uh, protective outlook uh, I believe nonprofits may need cash to get them through 18 to, to 36 months. And I don't think we're just going to bounce back in, in Q4 and everything's just going to be fine and, and, and go on, you know, giving is going to return. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally a radically optimistic person, but I think it's going to be a very difficult road ahead um, a, a multi-year cycle for nonprofits doing really important work, both both globally and also, of course, locally in, in the communities where we're seeing some of this trauma play out. I know you are in the thick of this yourselves, but um, do you have any strategies, any ways that companies and organizations can go about fundraising or asking their supporters to continue to support them during this time, during what's likely to be a very significant recession? I think you just have to keep talking with your supporters. Um, You've got to communicate. You know, we have chosen to really uh, lay back a little bit on the fundraising. You know, we realize many of our donors are meeting local needs right now. They're meeting food bank needs. They're they're helping coworkers uh, pay rent. And, you know, we've, we've really been communicating a message of gratitude. You know, our message to many of our donors over the last month has been, thanks to your support over the last 13 years, you have equipped 11 million people across 50,000 villages across 28 countries for this moment. We've been sending pictures of people at our wells in Ethiopia socially distancing, sitting on jerry cans six to 10 feet apart, uh, using hand washing stations at Charity Water Points. So really our message has been we're grateful for your support. Uh, we're grateful for your continued support. We know many of you are facing challenges in your own businesses, in your own families, in your own companies. And we do hope you're able to support our mission uh, going forward. But it's, it's really been communicating gratitude, I think. And, you know, on a personal level, I mean, I'm, I'm in a, a, a rented house in rural Pennsylvania with four generations. And I've got young kids running around just driving my wife and I crazy. Um, we have a deep new appreciation for their kindergarten teachers. And, you know, I'm just trying to practice gratitude um, for the health, for the safety, for, you know, many of us at Charity Water took pay cuts, you know, but we have jobs. You know, I was shopping at a Walmart the other day and I was, I was checking out in front of a woman who had just lost her job working in the car dealership. And, you know, 
just looking for moments, looking, looking for ways to be generous, looking for ways to be grateful, looking for ways to reach out to our friends and our family and our coworkers and just say, we're thinking about you. How are you doing? You know, realizing that people are having a wide range of experiences and, and I might be, you know, craving alone time or any sort of solace, but I, I've got friends that are, that are lonely. They're cooped up in apartments without that social connection that, that so many of them need to thrive. So I think it's about thinking about others, trying to just, you know, it's easy to wake up grumpy every day. I had two kids in my bed last night. You know, I got a lousy night's sleep and it's, it's another day of Zoom calls. And, you know, trying to turn that negativity or the, the complaining to this, as I say with my kids, the attitude of gratitude. You know, we try to make a game out of it. I mean, but do you think you will be able to long-term sustain the work that Charity Water does? Um, what kind of and what percentage of that work will will be able to go on considering global travel so is so affected? The you know economy is at such a shaky point. Um, I absolutely do. I mean, you know, Christine, the organization prepared for this uh, very thoughtfully and very strategically. We, we knew a downturn was coming. Uh, you know, I, we probably would have told you it was a 20 to 25% market correction that would last a couple years, not a, not a black swan event. But we, we prepared for this. We have been deeply focused on resilience uh, and, and not just making it to the other side, but actually coming out on the other side stronger and able to uh, meet the opportunities. I, I think people are going to have a radically different awareness and appreciation for water throughout this time. And, you know, it, it is my uh, obsession that the organization emerges strong, uh, able to, you know, accelerate the mission, maybe even make up for lost time uh, a couple years from now based on the decisions that we're making right now. You know, practically around the world, you know, we employ over a thousand locals. Half of them are on shutdown orders. So half of our local partners are, are shut down. Others are out there now. Uh, being repurposed as hygiene trainers and installing hand-washing stations. I just got a video from Ethiopia of people drilling with masks on, social distancing in the village. Uh, there are rigs that are actually going and providing the clean water that people need right now uh, every single day. So that it varies by country, you know, based on the 20-some countries where we work on. But absolutely, um, we may be able to help less people this year and next year uh, based on reduced funding. But... You know, if we help a million people instead of a million and a half people, that's a million new people that got clean water this year. And, you know, I think we will, we will be so focused on, on the mission and the, the, the belief of the mission of clean water, the belief of what Charity Water stands for is stronger now than, than ever before. So you're, I have to ask, your organization deals in essentially communications about public health crises. Um, it must be so frustrating to watch officials around the globe fumble and, you know, let's be real, kind of botch communications about how the public can respond to this moment. Um, I mean, no one's ever been through this before who's living. Um, and, you know, the public is kind of thirsty for information on how to help, how to, how to act. What can officials um, be doing differently right now? Consistency of communication. I think you, you nailed it. I mean, that's the, you know, we, it feels like there are just many different messages uh, coming from, you know, and this isn't a political thing, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, there certainly has not been a, uh, a national coherent messaging on 
what we should be doing to to keep our family safe, our loved ones safe, our, our neighbors safe. And I think, you know, the international community, you know, we, we have, we've done a pretty good job communicating around our issues. I mean, I can tell you right now, four in 10 households do not have soap and water on the premises. If you ask me six months from now, I'm going to give you the updated stat on that, or it might still be four in 10. You know, so I think just the, the clarity and consistency, uh, hopefully that, that we can move to. And, and I don't think it's just our country. I think it's, it's many other countries as well, just not preparing for this, not knowing really how to how to deal with it. I, mean, I think there is a sense of, of of empathy that we have for for any leader in any situation um, trying to just figure out the best way forward. But I I do think being clear and consistent certainly serves us all well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Scott Harrison. This has been very illuminating um, on many levels, and I appreciate you being here with us today. Of course. Thanks so much. After talking with Scott and getting inside his process of thinking about how and why to tell his own personal story, one thing that's interesting to me is that he is so recognizant about how good he is at telling his own story. And his strategy has been so successful that he's infused his whole organization with that same sort of ability. I mean, Charity Water tells its stories constantly, both through a journalistic sort of lens, reporting back to donors with evidence of the work it has done, and from a personal one, encouraging employees to share their own journeys. And that works really well, not just for making deals and not just for attracting like-minded employees, which it also certainly does, but for fostering the kinds of deep human connections that reach beyond just doing good business. And for teaching other people that, just maybe, it's never too late to use that time you really messed up to do some good. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also really appreciate it if you could recommend us to a friend or help recommend us to a lot of people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I know it seems like a small thing, but your thoughts really do count when it comes to getting us more attention. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Let us know what you think about using your own personal story to market your work and who we should have on as our next guest. Our producer, who is surrounded by magnums of Dom Perignon, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.